Well, for some of you, this will be easier than others, but uh, can you remember back when you first learned to ride a bicycle? Uh, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands if you know how to ride a bicycle or not, but I would assume most that, other than the youngest, have probably learned to ride a bike in your life. Um, but as you, if you can remember what that's like, I, can, I have uh, faint memories of that, and I certainly have near memories of teaching my children to ride bicycles, but, but the key issue when you're learning to ride a bicycle is, is keeping your balance, right? That's what you're really trying to teach. That's the skill you're trying to develop. It's not so much the pedaling and, and the steering. It's keeping your balance and keeping that center of balance on the bike, and so you, what ends up happening, you'll, you'll get a child, and, it's like, and they, they start leaning, and they're leaning, and then there's that tendency to overcorrect, and they throw all their weight back the other way, and then it's, you know, it's over, and they're crashing into the bushes, that kind of thing, and, uh, which makes for great video if you, you know, now with cell phones and all of that, but they can laugh at it later. But you, you have to keep that, that balanced position uh, over the bike. Uh, that, that keeping a balanced position isn't just a good principle in bike riding, it's, it's a good principle for the Christian life. I mean, that, that, that sticks. The, the Corinthian church was really struggling to keep their balance, we could say, and, and, and they're, they're, they, they have this tendency to lean hard to one side, and, and it looks like they're about to crash. And so Paul's writing to, to get them back in balance in the gospel. That's what he's been doing in, throughout this letter with all these different issues. And so in this extended section of the letter that we started way back in September, Eric started this and working through chapter 8, Paul's dealing with this tricky issue for the Christians in Corinth of, of, of food that was offered to idols. And so in particular, they're wanting to know whether it's okay or not to, to go into these pagan temples and eat the meals there in the temples, which was kind of the community center of the day. And so they're really, they're not wanting Paul, they're really wanting Paul to say, hey, it's okay to do that. That's what they're really after. It's no big deal. That's what they're hoping Paul will say. And so the Corinthian Christians, remember, we've seen this throughout this letter. Most of them, they prided themselves on their so-called knowledge. They, they were so proud of their wisdom and the knowledge that they possessed. They were the, these spiritual elitists who, who kind of thought they were basically too big to fail because, because they were so knowing. They, they were the elite. They were the cream of the crop. They had everything going. And because of this attitude, this thought of, quote, freedom and rights, it, it really deeply resonated with them. And so they, they, they're clinging to their rights to do the things that they wanted to do. And they bucked and they kicked against any, any constraint upon those so-called freedoms and rights. And so Paul knows this, and he's dealing with his issue of, of idol meat uh, in light of that. And the way that he deals with it is reflected by that. And so if all that they were doing was asking this very simple and sincere question about can we or can we not go into the, into the pagan temples and eat meat, if that's all it was was a little simple question, an honest question, Paul could have just said, no, you can't, stop it, end of question, and he could have moved on. But that's not what he does. He takes three whole chapters to deal with this. And so this, what, is, what is essentially a, a very little question is answered with this lengthy and very theologically complex response, dense response. And so because he's trying to get to the root of the weed, not just chopping the top of it, the part that you can see, you know, of going to the temple and eating meat. No, there's more under the surface. And so let me just summarize how he's been dealing with this because I, I know it's easy to get lost 
miss the forest for all the trees. And we've been covering this since September. I know there's been breaks along the way. And so think back to, to how he's done this and how this has developed over these three chapters. So first, he, he totally reject, rejects the way that they frame the question. He just rejects it outright. He says, they're, they're saying, don't we have the right to do this? And Paul says, no, 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 no. And he reframes the whole issue in, in terms of love rather than rights. That's what chapter 8 was doing. And so then in chapter 9, he offers himself as this example of renouncing, renouncing personal rights for the sake of others and for the sake of the gospel. He holds himself up and says, hey, this is how I've lived. And then in chapter 10, the first part of chapter 10, he, he answers their questions. He finally gets to more direct answers. And he, and he goes to Scripture and he warns them of the dangers of idolatry, which actually amounts to participation with fellowship with demons. And he says, no, flee idolatry. Don't go. And then finally, he closes the section out. And as he does so, he's, he's kind of tying up some loose ends. And then, and then he, and he doesn't want them to overcorrect. So they're leaning hard. He wants them upright, but he doesn't want them to swing to the other direction. And so he, he, he corrects, uh, he, he, he anticipates some of the misapplications of what he said. And he addresses that. And then at the very end, he restates these core principles that have really been uh, anchoring and, and giving definition to the whole section here. And that's how he closes this whole section out. So the outline part of the sermon, the part that's going to be easier to take notes on, the part that's going to be on the screen, is basically going to be the conclusion. And it's, and it's essentially uh, chap- verse 31 of chapter 10 through 11.1. Those are the core principles that Paul concludes with. But I want us to walk through verses 23 to 30 quickly and just see, see how he's keeping the church, trying to get the church back into a balanced position. And so in, look at verse 23. In verse 23, he quotes one of the favorite slogans of these Corinthian Christians. And we've, we've seen this already back in chapter 6 when we're talking about sexual immorality. They, they, these proud, these wise, these free Christians, they love to say this. They love to bang on this drum in the church. All things are lawful. Back in chapter 6, we saw all things are lawful to me. Now, I don't think, I, I didn't really think about this at the time when we were back in chapter 6, but I'm not sure lawful is really the best way to translate this. And, 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 and what I mean is when we hear lawful, what do we think of? We, we think of law. We think of particularly like God's law and as we're in a context like this. And, and so, but the Corinthians, they're not, they're not making the, the, a theological case that all things are lawful. Like our behavior is, is, is in accordance with God's law. That's not what they're saying. A, a better translation would probably be something like, and some of, some of yours say this, everything is permissible. It's permissible. I actually love the NIV here, the way that they translate it. I think it gets a sense well that the, the NIV says. They say, I have the right to do anything. That's what they're saying when they say all things. I have the right to do anything. I, the, the Corinthian motto is basically, we can do what we want. We're free. We're free in Christ. We're not under the law. We're under grace. We can do what we want. Now, there's a measure of truth to that motto that we understand as Christians, but it's, it's only a half-truth. It can be taken in isolation of, of other truth. We, we are free in Christ, but that freedom is not absolute. No. So Paul pushes back against this, this imbalance, this bumper sticker form of Christianity. And in verse 23, he says, all things are lawful. This is, the, again, in quotes, because this is what they're saying. He says, but, 
Not all things are beneficial or helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. It's absolute, self-centered, rights-clinging freedom to do what we want isn't freedom. It's dangerous. It's a, it's a form of bondage. I mean, most of you, if, of driving age, if you ever licensed, you, you were free to drive here this morning, weren't you? That's a wonderful freedom. Young people, that's a great thing when you get that license and you're free. I, just, I, can, I can remember that feeling. I don't remember riding a bike as much, learning to ride a bike, but I can remember getting that driver's license and being free to drive on the roads. That's great. That's been fun to see with our own children. That's, that's wonderful. That freedom is wonderful, but it is not an absolute freedom, is it? <laughs> yeah. You're, you, you were free to drive here and to be here whatever time you got here, but you weren't free to come here and drive on the left side of the road just because it's smoother or something like that. No, not at all. I mean, just suppose you tried that. You thought like, hey, I want absolute freedom. I'm free to drive. i got a license. I can do what I want on the roads. How would that work out? It wouldn't be very free. <laughs> the roads would be a death trap. You wouldn't get anywhere fast. You wouldn't get anywhere safely. You, you, it, you, it would be absolute gridlock on the roads. Everything would be choked down. So our freedom to drive on the road must be restrained, constrained by, by thinking of others on the road, which is basically what our laws are helping us do. When we, rest, when we restrict our freedom that way, then everyone is free. Everyone is safe on the roads. So, so think of that. Just to illustrate, that's, that's, sort of the thing, that's the sort of thing Paul's saying here. We have freedom in Christ we should revel in that and enjoy that and maintain that. But, 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 and, and he sets us free. But our freedom is to be tempered by unselfishness. Thought of others. Christian love. That which, that which benefits the whole community. That's what the idea of builds up. Not all things build up. But we, we need to be concerned about that which benefits the whole community. Love. It, it, it constrains liberty. And you see it felt more. Verse 24. This is powerful. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. I mean, this is like a laser-guided bomb for these Corinthian Christians. And it is for us, if we're, if we're honest. This is because this is our default mode. This is so natural to us. The, the, I mean, you just think of the way that the candidates over the last months and that we're going to see until January, the, the way in which they've been appealing and will continue to appeal to prospective voters. This is it. It's, they're just trying to appeal to that which says, hey, this is what's good for me. That's all that matters to me. And they're trying to appeal to that, that natural thing in us. That this, is our, this, is, this is the way we think about. This is the way we view. This is the way we talk about almost every issue. We're honest. This is the first and greatest commandment of our culture and of being human. Put my interest, my rights above all else. This is, this is default mode. And so what about me uh, what, and what I think is good for me? That's what matters most. And so what, just think. Take verse 24. Just bring that in to realms of life. Bring that into your marriage. What would... What would our marriages look like? How might they be transformed if with every, every fiber, every, every, every spirit-empowered fiber of our being, we sought to put verse 24 into practice? 
to, to not seek our own good, but to seek the good of our spouse. You have two husband and wife that are doing that and committed to that. Oh, wow, what a transformation. What would this do in our families? What would this do among siblings, brothers and sisters, and all the squabbling? If, if, this, was, if this was the focus, what would this do, and how would this transform our relationships with one another in the church? How we could weather difficulties and disagreements. If every single Sunday we showed up, and, and, and we, we showed up not seeking our own good, but, but seeking the benefit of others. We, we show up ready to serve and to sacrifice and to, to speak words that build up, to do good to one another. This is what compelled us. This is, this is how would our small groups change if this is, if this is the, how we came? How would the well Wednesdays young people change if this is how you came? How would our elder and deacons meetings be, be adjusted and transformed if this is how we came? I mean, we, we struggle to keep our cool when somebody sits in our seat on a Sunday morning. Now, not so much in this building, but be honest. It's been long enough, but let me remind you how possessive some of you were of your seats. Uh, maybe you're starting to carve out new territory here. I don't know, but we can lose it. And, 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 and here, but if we come in and we say, oh, what matters to me is not, it's not my good. It's the benefit of others. This is powerful. This was so foreign, though, in the Corinthian church. And, but, but, and so much of this, this rancid attitude of claiming what matters is me and what I want, it, 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 when, when that shows up in our hearts, it, it shows how highly we think of ourselves and how lightly we think of Christ in this cross. What He's done for us. There's, there's no way for us to fully grasp what Jesus did for us for our good. He didn't just come to, to you know, kind of drive by in his, in his fancy car and, and give us a handout out the window and we're standing on a street corner, you know, metaphorically and holding a cardboard sign and just throw us something. No, he, he became one of us. This is what the incarnation, what Christmas is about. He, he became poor. He became a slave. He, 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 he came and was tempted as we are. He, he, this is the most profound act of condescension you could ever imagine. It goes beyond anything we can fully comprehend because there's no way for us to fully grasp the heights from which Jesus descended and condescended. Eternal Son image of the invisible God, right hand of the Father, full of glory and honor and power, worshiped by angels. It is that Christ in, in unfathomable glory who actually came into this world as a human being. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, rejected, forsaken, of men, and he, what? He did it for our good, for our eternal good. There's, there's no way, Paul says, to comprehend the love of Christ. It surpasses knowledge. And, and I'm jumping ahead because, but this is, this is what our love for others, he's going to conclude and say, this is what it's modeled after. It's Christ. If Jesus has done this for us, oh, how should we put others first? Because the gap between Christ and us is infinite. The gap between you and me and one another, it's, yeah, it's, not, it's negligible. We can't even distinguish because we're all sinners. 
pursuing others' interests ahead of our own, seeking their good, not our rights. And so, so Paul's been pushing hard throughout this section, and I know this is a lot we've already covered. He's pushing hard against this tendency toward careless, self-focused, unconstrained, unrestrained freedom for three chapters now. But, so he's trying to get them back to center, but he doesn't want them to move past center. I think that's what's going on here. And so he doesn't want them to overcorrect and lean too far in the other direction. So toward the end of the section now, he qualifies these exhortations so that they don't misapply what he said. And so he's made it clear they should avoid eating meat that's offered to idols. They, should don't, they, they shouldn't go to the pagan temples and consume that. No matter how normal this was in their society and, and how uh, just awkward it would be for them to pull out of that, they, they should not participate. And so before they extrapolate that warning in all kinds of wrong ways and apply it in wrong ways, Paul qualifies what he said. So what, what about meat sold in the market and, and then prepared and eaten in your home? Is that okay? Can, is the meat spiritually contaminated even if it's not eaten in the temple? And so verse 25, this is his response. He says, eat whatever. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. When you go to the butcher counter and your number's called and you walk up there and you see that prime grade brisket laid out and behind the glass there, and I'm salivating just thinking about it, um, don't ask questions where it came from. Don't, don't, don't worry about the possibility that may have been offered to Apollo first. It doesn't matter. He says we're not to raise any question on the ground of conscience. I don't think what he's saying, this is the way we think of conscience, I don't think he's saying don't ask for the sake of your own conscience. Uh, you know, don't burden your conscience with that kind of information. If you, if you, you know, if you, depending on what you hear, then you might be conflicted and, you, and you'll be, you'll be, this, your conscience will be screaming at you and we don't want that. That's not what he's saying. I think what he's saying is basically it's not a matter of conscience. It, meat is meat. It all comes from God. Paul's saying saying to them, he's saying to us, maintain your freedom. It's good. Eat whatever you want without asking questions, thinking it's a conscience issue. It doesn't matter where the meat came from. It doesn't matter how it was killed. Buy it. Take it home. Rub it down with equal parts, kosher salt and coarse ground pepper. Smoke that bad boy for 16 hours. Slice it and consume it. Enjoy it. Now I'm really getting hungry. All right. He's saying don't, don't be over-scrupulous. Then he turns to Psalm 24.1. We read this psalm at the beginning of the service. And he quotes in verse 26. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, you may not realize this, but every, every Jew, every good Jew, when he would sit down to have a meal, he would mutter those opening words of 20, Psalm 24 to himself. It was his way of giving thanks for the food that he was about to eat. This was, this was normal. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That's the version we taught with our own children. And so Paul uses this verse, not just for thanksgiving, but what he's doing is he's asserting that everything comes from the Lord. There's no such thing as unclean meat in God's world. And so he's teaching us to have this, this open, welcoming, front-facing approach to life and to the world. We don't have to go around fearful and trembling and, and, and suspicious with our arms folded and angry and, 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 and afraid. No, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Enjoy it. We live in God's wonderful world. We're, to, we're meant to appreciate and enjoy the world. Now, of course, we're not to love the world in the other New Testament use of the word world. But the earth, this world, is full of God's bounty. 
And it's for us to enjoy. So he says, eat. Don't raise questions on grounds of conscience. That's not an issue. And he gives another scenario, the same, same idea, though. He says in verse 27, if, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, this would be in their home, not at the temple. We've already dealt with that. And you are disposed to go, and you want to go. So eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. He says, go, enjoy, eat. Don't start interrogating the host and where did you get this meat? When did you buy it? And what was it? You know, how, where did it come from? And how was it prepared? No, no, no. It's not a conscience issue, he's saying. Don't make it. Don't make it one. Eat whatever's set before you. Now, in verse 27, you see he, it begins that little word, little particle, if. It's a conditional particle. And in, and this is, I don't want to get technical, too technical here, but in the Greek language, there are, there are, there are multiple constructions, those conditional particles and conditional constructions. And, and they can say, they can have very different meanings. So some, someone like this, when, when, he's, when he uses this construction here, he's saying this is a very likely scenario. Like if and, it's, if and when an unbeliever invites you to their home for dinner. Like it's going to happen. So this is very likely, and assume that it's going to happen. And then, but then in verse, keep reading verse 28, he says, but if someone says to you, now that if is very different. And th this construction is indicating this, this purely hypothetical scenario. It's kind of like, for the sake of argument, just imagine this scenario. It's not, it's not likely like he's saying in verse 27. I'm not saying it's impossible, but that, that, it's just for the sake of argument. But if someone says to you, verse 28, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his. So the Christian goes into the unbeliever's home and someone comments on the meat that's being served in that meal. Right as you cut off that piece of meat and you got it on the fork and putting it to your mouth, someone says, Zeus, huh? this was offered to Zeus. You're like, oh, <laughs> I mean, it's that kind, of, that kind of scenario. Now, remember, it's hypothetical, so he doesn't, he doesn't say who the someone is that says this. He doesn't say what their motive is in saying it. So I, I know there are interpreters that go crazy with this, trying to identify who it is and why they're saying it. Maybe the host is, is this is a Christian friend, a Christian neighbor, and he's, it's a courtesy. He's just saying, hey, I don't know if they want to eat meat that's offered to idols, so I'm, I'm telling you this, just so you know where it came from. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's... Uh, an unbeliever that's testing this Christian and trying to trip him up and trying to, trying to bust him, you know, make him stumble in some way. We don't know the motive for sure, and it really doesn't make any difference. So Paul says, here's what you do in that scenario. The minute you find out, you don't eat. You don't eat. And you don't eat for the sake of the one who informed you, and you don't eat for the sake of conscience. And I don't mean your conscience, but the conscience of the one who informed you. Now again, conscience, it's, it's different than the way we tend to think of it. It's a very difficult word to translate into the English language. And, and again, there's a lot of ink spilled about this. But it, it means something like, um, like a moral consciousness, awareness. So it's, so it's not that Paul's concerned that the unbeliever will be troubled in his conscience, like he's going to lose sleep and be conflicted about whether it's okay or not for this Christian to eat idol meat or something like that. He doesn't care at all whether the, a Christian eats meat sacrificed to an idol. That's not the point. What Paul means is something like this. Look, we, we as Christians, 
We, we know there's only one true God. Idols, idols are worthless. They, there's no God there. We talked about this the last couple weeks. Now, the unbeliever doesn't have that knowledge. He doesn't have that consciousness, that awareness. He's operating on the assumption that this meat has sac- been sacrificed to an actual God that really does exist. They're pluralist in this culture. And, and so the Christian needs to be aware of that person's conscience, awareness. He, if he eats it, the unbeliever's going to interpret that the wrong way. And it could, give wrong, it could wrongly give validation to, to the idol that the meat was offered to. You see what he's saying? So you, you may say, but the unbeliever's wrong. The unbeliever is interpreting this wrongly. That's his problem. Paul said, that's beside the point. Well, this is the point he's making, actually. That, that, that you put the other person first. Don't eat. If there's a good chance of misunderstanding or misinterpretation because of, of their conscience, of their consciousness, awareness, then, then you make a decision for the good of that person. You don't just say, well, I can't help it if he doesn't know Psalm 24, 1. I'm going to eat what I want to eat. You make the decision based on what's good for them. And so we're to, we're to maintain our freedom, but we're also to be ready to give up our freedom for the sake of others. And then we come, all right, quickly, this is the most difficult part of the passage, and I know there's not much time, but in verse 29, the second half of verse 29 and verse 30, there are, there are two rhetorical questions here, and, and there is how in the world these fit, that's the, that's the issue with, with the flow of the argument here. So Paul says, just back up to verse 28, the first part of 29, he's basically saying, don't eat the meat for the sake of the other person's conscience when they say, you know, this is idle meat. Then, in verse, the, then right in the middle of verse 29, he says, For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? You see the difficulty in understanding the flow of the argument there? You see the, what seems like a contradiction here. So couple, a few possibilities here. One, Paul could be offering an objection um, or or, or, or a complaint himself in this word. So he could, this could be Paul kind of speaking for himself. He speaks in the first person here. So he, he may, maybe that they're very critic, they've been very critical of Paul, and maybe the letter they wrote to him about eating in certain places at certain times, and Paul, you're too lax about this. And so Paul, Paul's defending himself. It's possible. I don't think that it really fits with the flow of the argument. Another possibility is Paul could be anticipating an objection from the Corinthians. And so this, maybe this should be in quotation marks. Like these are, these are the Corinthian words that they're saying, hey, they're, they're objecting. Paul knows that they're going to object, so he kind of puts it in first person speaking for them. What are you doing limiting our freedom? We can do what we want. We can give, we give thanks. You can't, you can't restrict our freedom in this way by someone else's conscience. That's possible, and it makes a lot of sense, honestly, with what proceeds. There are some textual challenges, and I can't go into all that right now for the sake of time. Or, or the third possibility is that it may be that verse 29b is a continuation of the argument that Paul was making in verse 27. And then verse 28, 29a, they're, they're uh, sort of a parenthesis. So if you read verse 27 straight to the second half of 29, it makes good sense. And then verse 28, 29a may be sort of a rabbit trail. Uh, he had this hypothetical situation, remember we talked about, where he's making a different point to, to kind of to keep him from overcorrecting, and so then he resumes the argument. I don't know, honestly. I, I, the, third, the third of those possibilities makes the most sense to me. 
it, it's difficult. Regardless, don't get sidetracked here. The big idea is very clear in this passage. We're to be ready to give up our freedom for the sake of others. Lay aside our rights. But <laughs> we're also to maintain our freedom. That's, that's, that's the line he's walking. Paul's insisting that he, all believers, are free. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with eating that meat. But at times we must choose unselfishly to abstain for the sake of others in love. Not because the other person is right and we're wrong. Not, because of our, not on account of our conscience. Not because we'd be sinning to eat. That's not the issue. But for the good of the other. That's the big idea that he's making here. I mean, this is, this is rubber meets the road kind of stuff. I know we're talking about idol meat, and it doesn't seem immediately applicable, and it's really not. We're not going to temples. We're not asking these questions when we go see Philip at Kroger. And, you know, where did this meat come from? Was it sacrificed to idols? And so we're not working through that dilemma in, in our, you know, grocery shopping, that kind of thing. But this is, this, this is applicable and tremendously important in so many areas of Christian life and ministry. There are many things which, in light of Scripture, we're free to do. There's nothing wrong or sinful in these activities, and, I, and we shouldn't let anyone tell, you, tell us there is. that We don't want to just hand over, surrender our freedom in Christ. I mean, There are modern-day Pharisees who will do all they can to load you up with le- in, in, and put you in legal bondage by, so that you're, you're not afraid to do or to enjoy anything. Maintain your freedom, brothers and sisters. But at the same time, hold in balance the the need, the the good, the spiritual benefit of others. And where it's necessary, restrict your freedom. As you know, there are issues that aren't always black and white. We we may come to different conclusions from one another. And and so are we mature enough as a church, as a flock, to, to be able to disagree on secondary matters and still love one another? Uniformity is, is not the mark of a healthy church. That's a mark of a sect, a cult. I mean, do, do we, everybody has the same opinion. Everybody does exactly the same things. Everybody reads exactly the same books. Everybody you know, has the same little list of do's and don'ts. I am not a Pope of Baraka. I'm going to tell you, this is what you do of this exact situation every time. And, and I, I know there's, there's a tendency in us we want. We just want to be told exactly what to do. And you, know, and you know what else? At times it means we're going to appear inconsistent. We will do something in one set of circumstances, and then we'll go over here, and we'll do something different in, a, in another set of circumstances. Paul was criticized sharply for this inconsistency that people picked up in his life and ministry. And we will be too, and so the, because the circumstances are different. So we can't make up our minds for one another. I can't tell you what to do and not do in every situation. We have to work out these principles not in isolation. I don't mean like, hey, you figure it out. What's, what's right for you is, you know, you do you, I'll do me. That's not what it is. But within the life of the community, within relationship, we, we, we work through these things, giving the benefit of the doubt. We resolve to do good. And so, so I'm just saying it's, 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 not, it's not always clear cut. But, but Paul concludes this section. This is, this is what I regret. We're, we're running out of time. You haven't probably taken notes yet. Nothing's been on the screen. And this is the main thing that we want to get to. There are these principles that, inform, that have been informing the whole discussion since chapter 8 and how he just puts them off in rapid fire. And we'll basically do that this morning. First, there's, there's a doxological principle. As we work through and navigate these matters, the first principle 
doxology. It's the glory of God. Remember what, remember what we live for. It says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I mean, the ultimate aim of the Christian life, the ultimate aim of all ethical decisions is the glory of God. He's saying we, we, we don't make our decisions, we can't make our decisions on pleasing ourselves. Our liberty, what we want, is not the litmus test of what's right and wrong. It's the glory of God. Paul's trying to move them and move us from a man-centered perspective and self-centered perspective to a very God-centered one, from an emphasis on demanding personal rights to an emphasis on worship and obedience and service to the Lord. We need the glory of God to be the overriding goal. That's what's got to drive us. That's got to be our aim. That's got to be our direction, what we live for. At times we'll use our freedom, and at times we'll restrain our freedom, all for the glory of God. Just, just think of all of the ethical decisions that, that could be solved by this. Not, so we're not asking any longer, what can I get away with? How much is too much? You know, what, how much is too far? How far is too far? That very minimalistic approach that we often have to sin and sanctification. But this maximalistic approach where we say, how can I glorify God in this? That's radically different. Just imagine the tensions and the disagreements within a church that will be resolved if we just committed to this. This part alone, together as a church, <coughs> petty disputes would evaporate. All right, second principle is the edification principle. And I say, remember what we avoid. He says in verse 32, Give no offense to the Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. The idea is to, to live in such a way that avoids putting unnecessary stumbling blocks in front of others. We've talked at length about this already. We, we, we know that the cross will give offense. Christ crucified is, a, is that message is a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles. Paul's made that point clear. But we, we ought to be sensitive to how, how people around us hear us, perceive us, receive us, receive from us. Paul's, Paul's not advocating for, you know, just accommodating the message or anything like that or man-pleasing here. He's, it's just an echo of what we've dealt with in chapter 9 verse 19 and his example in chapter 10 verse 24 of you know resolving to do good not concerned about ourselves third the evangelistic principle remember what we're working for he says not not seeking my own advantage but but that of the many that they may be saved I mean, this is paul's driving force the salvation of the lost now remember the opening illustration talking about learning to ride a bicycle um it's a rule of physics, I'm not sure. Mike, you can, you can tell me later what, what rule this has. I'm going with this as a rule. Uh, I've learned this from life. The faster you're moving, the easier it is to ride a bike. Now, there are bounds to that. So if you're going 120 miles per hour on a bike, that's probably not easy to stay upright. But, but if a bicycle is going very, very, very slowly, it's very difficult to maintain that balanced position on the bike. And I, I, think, I think what's wrong for so many of us, Christians, as a church, we're not moving forward. We're not gripped by the Great Commission. We're not, we're not compelled by the gospel and its progress in our community and around the world. And so that leaves us to just kind of sit still and we're, we're always teetering to one side or the other. We're just nitpicking about, well, this is right or this is wrong. I don't like that. And this and that's my liberties and my rights. And this is where we get hung up. This is what the Corinthians were at. He's already addressed this with him. And so Paul says, listen, I want to see people saved. That, that's what drives me on. And, and moving forward like that, it keeps us better balanced. 
Lord, help us to keep moving, not, not stop. I know in a time like this, it's easy to just pull back. and I mean, we struggle with that because we have to pull back meetings and gatherings like that, but I don't mean that. We can keep moving forward with the mandate to make disciples of all peoples, regardless of how many events are going on, but we've we got to keep moving. Everything we do, everything we refrain from doing is all for the sake of the gospel. And the last principle is the imitation principle. Remember whom we follow. To be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So he calls on them to imitate him in whatever ways he's imitating Christ. So we've seen his example. If, if meat, eating meat causes my brother, brother to stumble, I'm never going to eat meat again. Like that willingness. And then he also says, flee from idolatry. I want nothing to do with participation with demons. So, so all of those ways were to imitate Paul, but ultimately what Paul's doing is bringing us back to Christ. And the cross, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2. I mean, this has been implicit throughout this, this section, and now it's made very explicit. The fundamental pattern of self-emptying that Paul has patterned his own life at, after is Christ. He ends this whole long section, three chapters now, and that chapter break is clearly in the wrong place, and most of your Bibles reflect that. And so it ends it after verse 1 of chapter 11. But he ends this whole long section, leaving the word Christ just hanging in the air. It's honestly, it's more dramatic in, as you see it in the Greek. This is, this is it. He's leaving us with Jesus. Without explanation, without elaboration, he, this is by design. Everything is moving in, in this direction. Everything has been building to this, and he wants all eyes to be on Christ. Christ, who, who, who laid aside so much that was his, was his by right. He laid it aside willingly, freely. He emptied himself. He didn't consider himself. He gave himself for others, for us. And so so, so the, the, the principle that, that guides us through here is not so much like, you know, the WWJD, what would Jesus do? And we've got to kind of uh, speculate about what we, how, how we feel Jesus would act in this, this situation or not. I understand the sentiment of that. WDJD would be better. It doesn't roll off the tongue. What did Jesus do? That's, that's what matters. He loved us. He gave himself for us. He was re- when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. This is... This is what we're to focus on. The imitation of Christ is focused on the cross. Everything in this letter comes back to Christ and Him crucified, isn't it? We're seeing everything through the lens of the gospel. This is precisely what the Corinthians were failing to do. In their their quest to assert their personal freedoms for themselves. Brothers and sisters, this is exactly what the table is designed to do, as we're going to eat and drink in a moment. It's It's to fix our gaze once again, on Christ, we are, we're always leaning. It's always like we got a, you know, a pocket full of quarters and we're learning to ride a bike and we're always being pulled one way or another. And the, and, the, and, the, and the table is designed to give the church that equilibrium, to give us that center of balance again and, and as every time we eat and drink together. And so we're going to do that in just a moment. Let me pray and then we'll sing. Our Father, would you, would you help us to look to Christ? Not the Christ of our own imagining, uh, but the Christ of Scripture. And as we look there, and as we, as we come to the table, as we sing, as we remember Christ, would you, would you remind us that Jesus loved us and gave Himself for us, and how selfless in all of His pursuit of us He was. And then would you begin to remake and remold our hearts and our lives so that we can begin to display and, and with, 
with more consistency, a similar selflessness as we look to bring you glory. That that would be compelling in us. That as we look to edify, to build up brothers and sisters, not put any stumbling block in front of them. And as we seek to adorn the gospel by the way that we live, the way we pray for others, the, by, the, by looking at our lives, that, 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 that others might see how plausible, how powerful the gospel that we proclaim really is because they see in us its transforming effects. Lord, forgive us when we've made ourselves the, the center of our own moral reasoning, of our own pleasure, of our own agendas, of our own ends. Help us to, to love our neighbor, to love your glory, to love the salvation of sinners as we imitate you, our Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.